Listen to the word of God from Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Lord bless the reading of his word. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for the good news the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, made flesh, who lived life as one of us in perfect righteousness, and who gave his life a sacrifice for sin, who is risen from the dead and has ascended and is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, where he ever lives to make intercession for us. Lord, we claim standing even in the presence of God, even to pray as we are praying now, only because of the person and the work of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. Lord, as we look into the scriptures today, we ask for your wisdom, direction, insight, and understanding, not just to fill our heads with knowledge, but to fill our hearts with trust in our great Savior. For Lord, we know that living the Christian life is always a matter of trusting in him. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit in the presence of the body of Christ, the church, in our assembly together. We pray, Lord, that his ministry would be effective in our hearts and minds as we look into your word together this morning. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, and uh, I'm looking out. I can see a lot of faces I haven't seen in a while, some I think I've never seen. And uh, so you're kind of jumping into the middle, maybe. Although I'm hoping many of you have been joining us online, even if you haven't been here in person. And uh, so you've been sort of keeping up as we go. But we have, recent, in recent weeks, the last couple of weeks, we've been studying this text of Hebrews that is uh, famous for being difficult to understand. And uh, there's lots of different ways of reading it, and uh, some seem more uh, in context with the rest of Scripture than the others, and we've uh, been working our way through it. But today I wanted to begin by just sort of noticing where the writer of the book of Hebrews has been leading us, because we're now coming to sort of the concluding statement of this warning text that we find in Hebrews chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you could open it to Hebrews chapter 6 and follow along. But uh, where we started was in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we were introduced to our great, low, high priest. Uh, Because one of the emphases, well, there's two emphases in chapter 5 and really starting earlier than that. One is that Jesus is a high priest to end all high priests. And this is the theme that we'll carry forward from here in the book of Hebrews. But uh, he's better than any high priest we've ever seen before. He's the high priest, he's a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So he is outside of the context of the Old Testament law, the Aaronic, the high priest of the family of Aaron. So he's a better high priest. Well, one of the things that makes him a better high priest is he's a lower high priest. Because the uh, the second thing that's emphasized in this chapter is the lowliness of Jesus. The humility that the eternal Son of God, the King of Kings... God himself was made one of us. And in that, there is unprecedented humility. And God exhibits humility, which is unexpected. We don't expect God to be humble. We expect God to be exalted. But God exhibits humility in the person of Jesus, the son, the man that is God. And Jesus, as a man, experiences human life completely. You uh, experience human life. There's good days, bad days. There's great exaltation and utter abject loss. There's hope and fear. And the Lord Jesus, we are told in the book of Hebrews, has experienced that for himself. 
firsthand. There is nothing you have had to endure that he does not understand. And he doesn't understand it from afar, at a distance, like the stupid song says. God is not at a distance. God is one of us in the person of Jesus. And so he understands your troubles and understanding your troubles. He takes on the primary trouble of humanity, which is to die. To die because of our rejection of him. And so he dies, and so he becomes the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He's the priest who gives the sacrifice, and he's the sacrifice. And we're this is we're gonna learn all about this in the as we proceed on through the book of Hebrews. So Jesus, the lowly high priest, with us in every respect, became the source. This is at the, at the conclusion of chapter 5. He became the source of eternal salvation for us. And then the writer takes a big sideways jump. And he says, you know, I'd really like to explain this Melchizedek thing to you, but it's hard to do because you're hard of hearing. (laughs) And the word hard of hearing is really lazy. Dull of hearing. You're not really listening. And then from there he goes on this detour into this warning where he notices the need to move forward in the gospel and, and not get stuck at the beginning. But it's a need not to move past the gospel, but a need to move forward in the gospel. It's practicing, the way he describes it, practicing gospel discernment between good and bad. So he encourages us in real life to explore the implications of the reality of Jesus Christ, Savior of us sinners. He he says we should become people who by practice, by training, have our senses trained to discern between good and bad between what will be beneficial and what will be harmful. This is how I think we should think of that. We should address the question who we are in Christ and then think, how does such a person think or behave or believe? Another way of saying this is, If Jesus is real, and he's the Jesus of the book of Hebrews, if Jesus is real, then what? This is not simple 
legalistic moralism. It's personal. It's personal. If God has loved me the way God has loved me in the person of Jesus, what sort of response does that call for? Now, I can learn a lot about what sort of response that calls for by studying the commandments of Scripture, because those two things go together. But I don't just, I don't just exercise religious obedience. I exercise personal affection. This is what Paul was writing about when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the love of Christ compels us. And we don't see anything the way we used to see things back when all we had was religious moralism. Now we see Christ for who Christ is, and because we see Christ for who Christ is, the love which he has exhibited to us, demonstrated most fully on the cross, that love moves me. So this training that we're talking about in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6 is just that. It's the training of practicing, asking the question, if Jesus is real, then what? If Jesus is real, then how should I think? How should I see this or that problem or this or that person? How should I behave in response to this or that situation? And I have much greater liberty in all of this. And when I say liberty, I don't just mean the freedom to do what I think I want to do. I mean the freedom to do what I see to be right. And the actual power to pull it off. The strength it takes to endure doing the right thing. Because of the love of Christ. Not because God's up there and he's holding out the candy saying, if you do, if you act this way, I'll give it to you. No. Because he's already given us the prize that is his son. And because I know that love, I am moved to be loving and that is exhibited in my obedience to his commands. It is not just moralism or law-keeping. It's also not permissive lawlessness. It also doesn't forget that there is such a category as sin. As the world so frequently does. I think of this as a kind of applying in, in four kind of primary areas, and there might be others, but this helps me. And that is, first of all, in security. <laughs> Here's the thing. I know God in Christ. You cannot really harm me. In Christ, I have complete security. Already. And a secure person 
is a courageous person. So the apostles can look at the Sanhedrin, the, the, per, the guy Peter, the Peter who just a few weeks ago said, Jesus, I don't know who you're talking about. Shut up. I do not. I'm not with him. That same Peter, a few weeks later, stands before the ruling council of Israel and says, you tell me, should we obey you or God? Where did that courage come from? The love of Christ compels him. Because he says, you can kill me, but you can't kill me. He is secure. And so he behaves a particular way out of that security. We can look to, uh, in the area of direction. If Jesus is real, how should I decide this or that? How should I decide this or that? Is there a way that advances the exaltation of Jesus? Then I choose that way. And I can do that securely. I can do that even if it's costly. Also, this applies in the area of understanding. If Jesus is real, how do I see the world? How do I understand the politics of the world, for example, if Jesus is real? That's, that changes things. How do I understand chemistry if Jesus is real? Does it, does it matter when I'm studying chemistry whether this is created or happenstance? Whether it's filled with purpose by a personal creator God or whether it's empty of purpose because it just happened by pure chance? Yeah, it matters. How do I understand the world around me? I understand it. Paul says this right there in 2 Corinthians. I don't see anything the way I used to see it. Now I see it through the lens of the Lord Jesus, my Savior. I can understand this in terms of power. (laughs) Well, this is related to that security thing. If Jesus is real, what do you have the strength to do? Well, I think you have the strength to do whatever he calls you to do. And so I have a sense of myself that is informed by the gospel. Because I have been restored to life by real fellowship with the living God in Christ and by his spirit. I won. And that's where I start from. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, I'm here, I want to explain more of the 
deeper implications of the goodness of God toward human beings in the person of Jesus, but it's hard to do because you're not listening that well. You need to move forward. You need to move forward. You need to start from the gospel and continue in the gospel, in the reality of our salvation in Jesus Christ, in the reality of the goodness of God demonstrated by the sacrifice of Christ and by his resurrection and by his ongoing intercession for us day by day. It's wildly good news. And that's the beginning of chapter 6, and then he goes into this warning. He says, you know, because it's not possible to bring someone to repentance again who's experienced the good news and then fallen away. Okay, well, we've explored all that, (laughs) and we don't need to rehash it again today. To me, the point is this. This is my summary now, after a few weeks of grinding on this. There's no middle ground when it comes to Christ. Jesus does not let you have Jesus, the good guy. He's really not that good if he's not the Melchizedekian high priest savior who gave his life a sacrifice for sin, who must be relied upon in order to have restored relationship to God. If he's not that, then he should be opposed. And we're confronted in this text by the people who have considered that and rejected it. And he says, you can't, you can't stay in the middle. You're either, Jesus said this, right? You're either, if you're not with me, you're against me. Now we all started out in the against camp. So he says here in Hebrews, there's no path to repentance for somebody who's rejecting Jesus. As long as they continue to re- reject Jesus, then you can't bring them to God. This makes the point in my mind that people who really know Christ persevere in Christ. And in the context of Hebrews, this is all reminiscent of the warning he gave us about the ancient Hebrews who got right up to the door of the promised land and said, no, thank you. Those who persevere are those who really met Christ. And then we had this illustration, right, of the two patches of land. There's a patch of land that's cultivated and produces things useful to the farmer. And there's a patch of land that remains in its natural condition. The rain lands on all the land. For some land, it makes, well, what you see out there. The 
there's good ground. That's ground that receives the word and believes and persists in faith. And from my point of view, and I'm just giving you my personal testimony now, having received Christ, I cannot imagine discontinuing If someone discontinues, it's, to me, evidence that they didn't really get it. Because it's not a thing you can leave if you've gotten it. Well, <clears throat> when we come then to the next text, we're finally getting to the text for today. <laughs> Chapter 6. Verse 9. The writer says this, Though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. Hey, is he saying you're saved by your work? Well, no, but we'll have to figure that out. And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So my summary of this text is, is like this. We, we're sure you're the good ground. So he said there's this good ground that produces crops for the farmer and there's the other ground that just, you know, produces weeds because it's in its natural state. We believe you're the good ground. Right? That's this text. You're the good ground, right? Thank you. Just like we said last time, it's like we're hearing that question from Jesus to the disciples when people were abandoning Jesus because he said a few hard things to understand. And he looks at the disciples and he says, will you be leaving as well? And that's the question posed by this text. You're not leaving, are you? No. Well, he says here, we're convinced that you're the good ground. He says, even though we speak this way, we're convinced that you're the good ground. We have, uh, in this case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation about you. We're confident. Then he gives a reason why he's confident. He says, for God is not unjust. That's interesting. What I'd like to notice, first of all, is when he gives the reason for his confidence, he's not talking about them. His confidence is in God, not the Hebrew Christians he's writing to. And he says, now, 
God is noticing something about you. He says, God is not unjust so as to forget. Now, this word for forget really could be described like this. Quit noticing. Quit paying attention. What is it that God is paying attention to or noticing? Well, here it is. Your work in serving the saints and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints. God's noticed the fruit. You remember we had two patches of ground, right? One produces the right things, the things it's intended to by the farmer. The other produces weeds and thorns. And God knows the difference. God knows the difference. Now here's something I've noticed about myself. I'm not that good at knowing the difference. I can tell some difference. I can see love exhibited and recognize it. But God knows it perfectly. God knows it perfectly. I could say this even about myself. You know, sometimes what I, my life is producing looks like weeds to me, and maybe it is. But God, is God producing anything from the love of Christ in me? God's keeping track. God is not forgotten. And because that is the case, the writer of the Hebrews says, I'm pretty sure you're the good ground. In fact, he doesn't say it like that, I'm pretty sure. He says, I'm completely convinced you're the good ground. Because God knows your lives have borne fruit. It's the sort of fruit that is what we call, what is called here, serving the saints. He knows what you have done. He says it like this. He knows what you have done and what you are doing. And he knows it better than you. Because really, he's doing it in you, through you, for someone else. And here's the other thing. This work showed your love for God's name. That's also unexpected. Your love for God's name, serving the saints in this context, serving the saints is not showing your love for the saints, though it, it does do that. But in this case, what we're noticing is that serving the saints, your fellow believers, the body of Christians, the, Christ, the, the community of the saints, your service to the saints exhibits your love for God's name. It's a reflection of the love God has shown you to God. This reminds me of that commandment, you know, the commandment. 
the guy walks up to Jesus one day and says, what's the most important commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's one of the rare times when someone asks Jesus a direct question and Jesus gives them a direct answer. This is the most. And here's a bonus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, this is obviously a summary of, you know, like the Ten Commandments, the first part of which is about our relation to God, and the second part is about our relation to our neighbor. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. If you're loving God with all, what's left for your neighbor? Also, if you know the most important thing you can do, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, if you know the most important thing you can do, why would you ever stop doing that in order to do the second most important? Why do I even need him to tell me the second one? I think there's only one way to resolve that. And that is, the second one is part of the first one. In other words, I love God by loving my neighbor. And First John just makes this like explicit when it says, you can't go around saying how much you love God if you don't love your brother. And so when uh, I serve the saints... I exhibit my love for the name of God. I show it. So, the writer says, now, we know you're the good ground because God knows your service that reflects his love. Of course, service that's not reflecting his love doesn't fit this category but service that reflects his love. So I can imagine the Hebrews going then, saying, like I might say, well then why did you lead us through that terribly scary, threatening warning that you just led us through, writer of the Hebrews? If you're confident that we're the good ground, why are you scaring us about the evil ground? Well, that's what he says next. Because he puts a little, right? He says this. We really want each one of you to show, that's the same word, work that showed the love of the name of God. Here's the same word. We want each one of you to show the same eagerness for the certainty of hope until the end. In other words, I'm concerned about some of you. Because here's the thing, God knows, but I don't. And people are talking like maybe they don't need Jesus so much. Maybe we could just be good Jewish people, and then we wouldn't have to worry about the persecution that's coming for Christians. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is like, what? 
what? That makes no sense. And the whole book is a giant declaration of that makes no sense. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what Jesus has done? You know, I'd like to explain it to you, but it's hard explaining stuff to people who can talk like that. Yeah, okay, wait, no, I'm sure you're, you're saved. Right? That's what we have going on in this text. I want everyone, everyone, to exhibit the same eagerness for the certainty of hope. Now, here's something I've noticed about hope. The way we talk about hope, there's not a lot of certainty involved. Christian hope. Hope in Christ is absolutely certain cannot be disappointed. And he wants all of us to really get that and to be eager for the getting of that certainty of our hope in Christ. And he wants us to keep on in that zeal for the certainty of hope until that hope is realized when Jesus comes again. Until the end. So that, he says, you don't become lazy. (laughs) Well, guess what? That's the word he started with. He's he's looking at this group of Christians and he's saying, some of you have gotten lazy. Press on in the gospel. Renew the eagerness of your hope in Christ and the certainty of that hope in Christ and you will get over your lazy hearing problem. And from here he's going into you know, he's going to talk next about the promises made to Abraham. I mean, we're getting back to the complicated Melchizedekian priesthood next. So he's wrapped it around. He's come back and he's saying, if you stay focused on the reality of Christ in your life, and if you live your life day by day, detail by detail, with the gospel in mind so that you see every decision that you make, every word that you speak, every person that you meet from the gospel, from the reality of the love of God in Christ, then you will become eager and more eager for the certainty of this hope. And, you know, in the book of Hebrews, he's always telling us to draw near Hold on. Persevere. What is the thing that causes you to persevere? It is the privilege of knowing God in Christ. It is the fact that, we, as we read in chapter 4, you can barge into the holy place of the throne room of the living God and find grace 
and not judgment. And when anyone looks at you and says, what are you doing here? You can say, I'm with him. You know, you're going to meet some people in heaven one day and you're going to go, what on earth? And some people are going to see you there and go, what? Because every last one of us is a case of what on earth are they doing in here? And the only answer, the only answer is I'm with him. The Lord Jesus. And it is only the constant rehearsal of this reality that is the entire Christian life. I keep on in this. I don't move beyond it. And then I don't become lazy. Instead, I become an imitator of those who inherit the promises. Become an imitator of those who inherit the promises. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's in two words. Faith and perseverance. I become an imitator of those who, by faith and perseverance, you might say, perseverance in what? I think the only answer to that question is faith. Faith, persevering faith, is what he's saying. In the school of theology, we have a term called the perseverance of the saints. It's a doctrine. It's the doctrine that says that people who come to Christ stay with Christ. That's all it says. People who come to Christ persevere in Christ. That doctrine has another name which probably is more familiar to some of you, which is, it's the doctrine of eternal security. That says, if God gets a hold of you, he never lets go. Christ says, I know my sheep, my sheep know me, they follow me. I never lose a single one. If one wanders off, I go get it. Every time, all the time. And so, Paul can write, even though we're faithless, he's faithful. And so we have this doctrine that has like two sides, two names. One on the one side, it's it's eternal security, which which is what Jesus said when he said. No one can snatch you from my Father's hand. And we have the other side, which is called the perseverance of the saints, which is those who believe persist in believing to the end. And what we can learn from this is the operation of the 
divine hand in your life is the same as it was in the beginning. So that Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, in the same way that you began in Christ, so walk in Christ. How did you begin? You trusted. You brought nothing to the table. You simply clung to Christ, his, his righteousness, his goodness, his sacrifice. That's how you keep going on in Christ. And so this exhortation in the book of Hebrews is, always live from the goodness of God to you in Jesus. Not for it, from it. I don't get it because I lived a certain way. I live a certain way because I got it. Very different. So, you're the good ground, right? Yeah. Yeah. Continue. 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 Just as this whole book of Hebrews exhorts us all the time, several times, repeatedly, 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 Jesus has knocked down the barrier between you and God. Come on in, draw near, and hold fast. By the way, he's holding on to you even faster. Father, we give you thanks. We love you, Lord. And we love the way your love transforms our lives. Lord, we pray that these things would be real, that they'd find a way from our heads into our hearts, into our hands, that we would find, like the apostle found, the love of Christ compels us so that we don't see anything the way we used to see it or anyone. We exhibit the reconciling love of the Lord Jesus in our own lives. And Lord, especially in our service to one another in the body. These things we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.